Uh, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a delight and a joy to be with you this morning, uh, to be able to invite you into the Word of God, to, to step back into uh, the book of Mark this morning. And so I'm just going to jump straight in uh, with Mark chapter 14, verse 1. You can follow in your Bibles, or you can follow with the screen uh, as I read out loud. Mark chapter 14, verse 1 says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask. And poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, beauty and uh, betrayal mark this morning's passage. And frankly, they kind of mark the remainder of the season we're going to spend in the book of Mark. Beauty and betrayal, not two things that you normally think would go together, but here they are, smack dab in the middle of this very challenging, different, kind of sandwiched passage. If you're just joining us, we've been in this study on the book of Mark, which, which has been walking th with Mark, the narrator, through the story of Jesus and, and walking through the journey that he's been taking us through and how Jesus redefines the good life. And what we mean by that is how does Jesus take our concept of what is going to be great, what's going to make our life fulfilling and satisfying, and how does Jesus, as he teaches us and shows us, redefine it, shift it, transform it to be able to describe something that we maybe never would come to on our own the one who redefines the good life for us and points us to another way, the way of his kingdom. And this passage is, yet again, one of those times where he does just that. And it's going to show up in three particular ways this morning. The first we're gonna, thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at the false disciple, and then we're going to look at the free disciple. And lastly, we're going to look at how do we become free disciples. So the false disciple, the free disciple, and how do we become free disciples? Well, first of all, the false disciple. I, I think the final two verses of what we just read this morning are, are exceedingly tragic. I think they're some of the saddest verses in, in the scripture. They're grievous. It says, then, after, after this has happened, after she has anointed him with oil, after Jesus has said these things, it says, then, then Judas Iscariot, who was 
one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. I think one of the things that we see here is, is, this, is this inherent warning to us. As, Jesus, as Judas betrays Jesus, well, not yet, but is planning on it, and this is, this is one who has been, it says, one of the twelve, like he's been on the inside. He's been around Jesus. He's heard him speak. He's heard him see miracles. And, and he's had enough. It shows us that the, the warning that mere proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. That our proximity to the things of God doesn't mean faithfulness will emerge out of us. Actually, we looked last week and realized, last two weeks actually, and realizing that, that proximity and intimacy with Jesus invites us to be even more watchful, even more on our guard. Proximity won't cut it. And it didn't cut it for Judas. You see, he's, Judas has finally come to the end. He is fundamentally disillusioned by this point. He's a disillusion with the good life that Jesus seems to be pointing him towards is not in any way, shape, or form the good life that he thought that he wanted for himself. And he's been waiting. But this is not this Messiah that he signed up to follow. This dying and burial business is against all the trajectory of what he was hoping for. It's against this, the, the rise of Israel to be free again from under the Romans. Maybe even more so, it's, it's, it's completely thwarting his plan. He thought the trajectory was towards a throne and all Jesus keeps pointing to is not a throne, just some form of dying that's coming. And he thought power and, and riches were coming his way. And, and because he hasn't been very good at waiting, Judas, who's in charge of the money bag, which I never understood why Matthew, the tax collector, wasn't in charge of the money bag, but whatever. Y'all accountants can figure that out. Um, but, but Judas is in charge of the money bag, and it says in one of the other Gospels that he helps himself to it on the side. So he's an embezzler. So all along, he's been, he's had the heart of a, of a disciple that's kind of a false disciple. He's, he's looking for a way that, that, that Jesus is kind of pointing to, but also not, and he's helping himself on the side until the real riches, the real power, the real story is realized for him. Which is one of the reasons why both what Jesus says about what the woman did and what the woman did by not selling that ointment, which means that he didn't make his portion or able to pilfer his portion of the 300 denarii, is unsettling to him. He won't have it anymore. You see, in, in Judas's economy, there was, a, there, was, there was a good life that Jesus was supposed to work out for Judas. That faith and faith following Jesus, was supposed to yield the return that he was counting on, and it is not yielding for him at all. And so, since it's not going to materialize for him through Jesus, he's going to make it materialize for himself by selling Jesus. He's going to turn on the Lord. He's going to sell Jesus for 30 coins of silver, we're told, which is the lowest price you would pay for the lowest of slaves. He's selling him as an insult almost. So I, I'm not going to linger too much on this false disciple picture. Judas will show up in a couple, actually later on in this chapter in, in a few weeks. But, but I need to ask you, starting off serious, I need to ask you, are, are there ways in which you're living in proximity, you're functioning in proximity to Jesus and, and to the things of God, like you're, you're, like, you're like Jesus adjacent? 
Like you're, you're, you're near, but you're not actually with him. You're not a part of what he's inviting. You're not really interested in what he has for you. You're just kind of around the things of God because it works for you. And this morning's passage, what we see in Judas is that, that if that's the case, that, that you're at risk, that your, your soul is at risk A subtle and, and polite betrayal is underway. I think another way of asking the question is, are there ways in which you're cooperating with evil, with yourself or with other people? I, I think there's something really chilling about verse 11. It says, when the chief priests heard it, they were glad. They were glad. Like Judas made the enemies of Jesus joyful. And, and I just want to say that's all the work and all the effort and all the movement that the evil one wants to do in you is to help you make him joyful, which would be to go counter to all the movement of the gospel in you and for you. And, and, and my question to you is, are there any ways in which you're participating in that this morning? Are there ways in which you've maybe moved from like, you know what, I'm earnest after Jesus, I want to pursue the kingdom, I want to be about those kinds of things, and, and yet now I've kind of started a level of syncretism where I'm kind of doing a couple of two or three things, and now I'm actually more interested in what he can do for me, and, uh, but he's not doing it well, so I'm going to take care of myself, I'm going to go and fill myself with other cisterns. And are there ways in which you're a false disciple this morning and, and, and you know it and I, I guess what I just want to invite you this morning is that it's never too late to repent right now. Today is the day. If there are things in you that you know you're, you are false, like Judas, <laughs> Judas beckons you in Christ to say, come out of the darkness because it is darkness and it is death and it leads to death. It's that serious. Don't be a false disciple. Repent today. He, he's ready for you. But the thing that we see the most in this is this picture of a free disciple. And, and I think this is one of the most just beautifully described. Beaut the woman doesn't say anything. You realize that? There's no word. Don't quote her. Jesus speaks. Disciples and the guests speak. She doesn't say anything. She acts. And boy, does she act. Verse 3 sets up the scene. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, which is mean while they're eating, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, Mark uh, leaves this woman unnamed. Uh, John seems to point to the fact that it might have been Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and, and uh, that, that maybe that's exactly who this is. Uh, but, but Mark, for his purposes, is trying to say, honestly, it's not about identifying who this woman is. I want you to understand what she did. It's actually her act that I want to focus on. I don't want to put light on because of who the act is to. That's Mark's purpose. This is a remarkable act by this woman. It's a picture of a true disciple, of a free disciple. And so I want to look at a couple aspects of what a free disciple is like in light of what we see her do and act and be in this. And the first is that a free disciple is free to be countercultural, to go against convention. 
You see, in, in this kind of a context, the etiquette was that when, frankly, when you eat, the men eat together. Women don't come in unless they're bringing food. And this woman comes in counterculturally and anoints Jesus' head right in the middle of the meal. Like it's against the rules. And you can see that some of the guests are unsure exactly which, what's happening here and whether this is okay. Now, it's probably in light of what we've seen already in, in th- that, that it's probably true that there was already some, some changing of normalcy around Jesus of what kind of roles and what kind of ways in which women were allowed to be learning from him, which we see Mary learning at Jesus' feet. So things have been changing, but this is still like totally countercultural. And what we see with, with this woman, this amazing woman, is that she risks being judged. She walks into this room full of men as they're eating, and she takes the risk of being judged. And she was. It's not just a risk, it becomes a reality. Verse 4 says, And they said to themselves indignantly, which is indignant is one of my favorite words, so I find it fun when it's in the Bible. But they're indignant. And they say to themselves, what's wrong with her? Who does, she, who does she think she is? She's judged privately, but then she's publicly criticized. She takes the risk of being publicly criticized. Maybe she's going to be publicly criticized. Oh, no, she is publicly criticized. They say, okay, that's tricky. Um, they say, um, and it says that they scolded her. Another version says they rebuked her harshly, literally, Literally, the, the Greeks say they flared their nostrils, which is just one of the ways in which you can let your kids know that you're angry at them. I'm flaring my nostrils at you. She's in a room where she shouldn't be. And, and what, the, what the actual public criticism is, is why have you wasted this like that? Why was it wasted like that? That's what they see in this act, is, is a waste. By their standard, what she's doing is, is a wasteful thing, and, but by Jesus' standard, it is not wasteful. It's a beautiful thing. She did what she was able to do, he said. That's Jesus' standard. And because you have to realize, if, if Jesus is just a good teacher, right, if he's like your local friendly rabbi, if he's your, just a good guy, good dude, well, I think an argument could be made, maybe this is wasteful. But he's not. He's the king. He, he, he's Messiah. He, he is God come to earth, and, and it is fitting. He is worthy. He's more than worthy of the most expensive ointment, the most precious perfume. This is worship, and, and it is beautiful. Now, what's ironic is that the words that are in some ways meant to demean the woman, which they do, and they demean not only her, but they demean her gift, incidentally happen to also be demeaning to Jesus because what this is saying is that the guests and even the disciples seem to be going like, yeah, I don't know that you're worthy of this quite so much, Jesus. It seems like it's a bit excessive, don't you think? There was a better way for us to spend the money than doing it on you. His disciples are still learning who Jesus is. But this woman seems to know and see something that the others do not. She understands something about what Jesus is up to and where he's going, and she acts. 
and she acts in freedom. This woman is she's bold. A quick note here that we don't know if the indignation that the disciples have is based on a genuine concern for the poor, right? They're like, hey, listen, shouldn't this have been given to the poor, sold and given to the poor? I, we don't know if it was a genuine concern for the poor or whether, what I would say, in, as is in most cases like this, that the poor or the cause or whatever it may be are just simply a pretext for other motives, for their own self-righteousness or sort of their own self-justification about where they would choose to do or what they think is important. Now, let's be honest. It's always sincere to determine what other people should be spending their money on giving themselves to, isn't it? I can be super sincere about what I think you should be giving your money to or how I, what I think you should be investing yourself into. I can be wildly sincere about that. Theoretical generosity is always ear easier than actual generosity. Theoretical courage is always easier than actual courage. Theoretical sacrifice is always easier than actual sacrifice. Theoretical obedience is always, always easier, easier than actual obedience. And so in short, this woman, she, she, risks, she risks rejection and she receives rejection. It, it, it doesn't go well. The risk that she thought, if I go in here, you know, this might happen. I, I, might, I might be judged. I might, I might be criticized. I might be rejected. I might put my family's reputation on the line. I may, I may be misunderstood. All those things happen. Well, this isn't a great story, is it? Enter Jesus. Jesus asserts his presence. He comes to her defense. It says in verse 6, and Jesus said, I love the directness, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, Jesus spoke the truer word, the truer reality, the, the deeper thing as Narnia, the deeper magic. He, there was a truer thing that needed to be said. She had taken this countercultural personal risk, which... And it cost her. In that moment, it cost her. She heard the rumbling. She heard the criticism. But then she was received by Jesus. She was celebrated by Jesus. She was honored by Jesus. And, and almost shockingly, her actions are taken by Jesus and elevated to a picture of worldwide proclamation for the remainder of the time before Jesus returns that this story and this woman are going to be connected to the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but that is an amazing, beautiful thing. I, I would love for any act of mine to be connected that directly to the gospel of Jesus, which is a great reminder to us that you don't know what act of sacrifice or what act of generosity or what act of self-giving, what act is going to be connected to the proclamation, to the declaration, to the confirmation of the gospel in other people? Because Jesus says, 
we're attaching this wherever it goes. May our lives be connected in that way. So as those disciples are saying, if she was righteous, she would care about the poor, which that sounds good, right? I mean, if she was righteous, she would care about the poor. But Jesus answers, for you always have the poor with you, and, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now listen, Jesus doesn't make light of generosity to the poor. He doesn't dismiss the poor. He's faithful to the, to the, to the Old Testament and New Testament picture of, of Deuteronomy 15. Uh, he declares himself, he identifies himself with the poor, right? Jesus does so in, in Matthew 25 when he says, listen, uh, if you've given a cup of water to, if you've given food to the hungry, if you've given clothes to the, to the needy, if you've visited someone in prison, you've done it as though you've done it to me. So Jesus, Jesus identifies himself with the poor. He's not going like, all right, tell you what, the poor thing, not a real thing. Now he's saying it really is. And by the way, it's going to continue. You can do this. You must do this. He doesn't diminish the poor or the biblical mandate throughout all of Scripture to care for those in need. (laughs) Instead, he personalizes it for them. Do you notice how nicely ambiguous the disciples and the guests were? This could have been sold and given to the poor. Isn't that always great when you're like, yeah, those people. Someone needs to think about them. No, Jesus says, no, let me, let me just bring this home to you. Five times he uses the word you in here. He says, no, no, you will always have the poor with you, and you can do what you can every time that's possible. You must, actually. Going forward, you must, and, and by, the, by the way, by doing so, you'll be doing so unto me. But right now, I am here, and this is the crazy thing. This is the part that throws everything into a different perspective, is that Jesus, what D- Jesus does is to place himself as a scandalous, scandalously prominent person in the story. What Jesus is saying is, the poor will always be with you, and doing good really, really matters But I am more than that. I am more than the best deed, the most great good that has ever been commanded or invited to. I am more than that. He's placing himself above the poor. By by placing himself above the poor, Jesus is placing himself above the second part of the great commandment, the love your neighbor as yourself. He is better than all other good. Now, if he wasn't much, that wouldn't say much. But all other good is good and pivotal and consistent with the nature of God. And Jesus is saying, yes, it's because I am God. All of that good comes from who I am, must come from who I am. In essence, the value of the gift that she makes just signals the value of the person that is being made to The extravagance of this woman just demonstrates that she seems to be the only one among the disciples that understands who is reclining at table. And in this way, Jesus tends to do what he does, and that is to kind of mess up the rubric about why we give and why we are generous and what and where to. He kind of shakes that up. It's not a box that you might think it is. You're going to have to respond to me. 
And she responds to him. Now, one of the things that's unmistakable is to, to realize the connection between the woman that gave the two coins in the temple just a few days earlier that Steve preached on. They're almost parallel. You, you have this, this woman, right, who, who gave, as Jesus says, he's sitting there at the temple, you guys remember, and she comes and she drops her two little copper coins, and he says, look, look, pay attention to her. And he commends her, saying she's given, out of her poverty, she's giving all that she had to live on. And the same commendation he makes to that woman, he's basically making to this woman today. It's beautiful. Edward, James Edwards says, faith and discipleship do not live in a theoretical or ideal realm. What we might like to be or do, they are, they are absolute realities. Who we are and what we are able to give. In Jesus' sight, an act has value according to its motive and intent. And that, not its material value, is what makes it serviceable to the kingdom of God. When, when someone acts in this way, no gift, not even the smallest copper coin is meaningless. And no gift, not even a year's salary, is wasted. So this is a woman who, this is a free disciple. She's free to... She's free to um, give herself away, and she's free to be extravagant. Not just to be countercultural, but to be truly, seemingly reckless. The first thing we see is how this woman comes with a truly costly gift. This is an extravagant gift. I brought my extravagant gift with me. This is a flask of no, it's not a flask of nard. That would be great, wouldn't it? No, it's a polo flask. Um, I'm a polo guy. But so she comes with her version, more valuable than this, of a flask. And so um, scriptures say that, that they're saying she could have sold that thing for 300 denarii. That, that's, that's a year's wage, basically, for, for kind of the, the lower or the, the kind of the mid-range agricultural worker. So I don't know, today we're talking 40 grand, maybe $50,000. That's, that's the value of this thing. And she comes and she takes it and it says that she, she, she breaks it. She's kind of breaking it. And, um, and she pours the whole thing out. It's, it's too much, you see. It's, it's extravagance. One whole year's wage. It's, this is all her financial security, likely. You, you see, they weren't checking accounts and savings accounts and 401ks. People had things that were valuable that they would pass along, and this is one of those things that would be passed along either from family member to other family members. It's, it's your retirement. It's your, it's, your, it's your safety net. It's your savings account. It's, it's, what will, it's what will protect you in case things go really, really badly or in a, in a famine. It's... To pour it out is craziness. It's recklessness, especially for a woman who doesn't have the earning capacity that men do in the time. It seems like it's folly. Not only is it a costly gift, but it's also, it's something that is given in totality. It's, it's something that's not held back. It says that she broke the flask and she poured it out over his head. She doesn't just... She doesn't just like pour some of the ointment. It isn't like a little, like a little, like a little Jesus spritz. It's not like, hey, listen, it's kind of worth a lot, and so 
I think you're awesome and all, but like rainy day. No, no, no. She she snaps it. She she breaks it. Actually, those 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 alabaster flasks typically were sealed in order for not have leakage of the actually the contents to go bad. And so the one of the only ways in which you could start using it was to break it, and you would break it permanently, which meant that the gift was all of it. The offering was complete. It was total. She held nothing back. I think this confronts this confronts the false disciple for sure. But frankly, I think it confronts each one of us that would say, "Okay, listen, Lord, I." I you can have part of me. You're, you're worthy to be trusted with these areas, with these ways, but not, not, like, the, not like the whole thing, right? Not, not totality of all I have. I mean, you, you can have some. And so, so we, it confronts us because we, we think, oh, I can, if I do good enough to be and feel good enough, that's, that's good enough, Right? It's not doing anything crazy. I mean, wise living is, you know, spending on it according to your means and, and, and saving some money for the future. And, 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 and the scripture would say, yes, it is. It is, absolutely. What's counterintuitive, though, is that both in the narratives of the, of the New Testament in particular and especially in the things of Jesus, it seems like that's not the manifestation of ultimate character. That, that, that true discipleship is what Jesus asks the rich young ruler, and that is not what he's asking every single one of you, and that is sell everything you have. Break it and pour it out. Sell everything you have. And, and here's the thing, and the, the very important piece of this is if Jesus is asking you to sell everything, then you sell everything. You see, the, the way the, the, the true disciple lives is like this. What do you want? Do, do you want this, Lord? Do, do you, how much do you want? How much of me do you wish for? I've got to be listening to you and, and hearing from you because whatever you ask of me, you can have of mine. This woman is responding to Jesus and she's coming in and she's saying, you can have all of me. How do you want to use this? One of the amazing things about perfume and ointment, it's very precious and it's very expensive. But it's made to be used. But it only has value when it's not used up. The, the moment it's broken and, and poured out, which is its purpose, right? Ointment, perfume, it's, it's made to be, what, sit in a bottle? No, it's, it's made to be poured out, right? It's made to be experienced. It's made to fill a room. It's made to refresh a heart. It's made to, to honor a person. It's made to be offered as a gift. But the moment it is broken and poured out, it no longer has value. That's what's so wild about this. They recognize it's over. It's gone. All you have is the act of having chosen to do that on behalf of someone or towards someone. That's, that's, that's what you're left with. And Jesus says it's enough. This is meant to be poured out. What you have is meant to be poured out. That's its 
purposes. And, and my question to you would be, uh, to us is, to what degree are we using the things that Jesus has given us for their intended purposes? Or are we just like, maybe, maybe not, just a scarcity mentality. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I, I just gonna, I'm going to hang on to this just in case. That's, that's not the purpose. It's the purpose of your home, the purpose of your car, the purpose of your, of your, your all your physical resources have purpose, and are you using them for that purpose to be given away, to be poured out as he would lead and guide you, as you listen to him? Your spiritual gifting, your spiritual offerings, they're made to be given away. They're made to be offered. That's their purpose. 1 Corinthians 12 says these things were given to you for the good of everybody else, not for you. You see, you see, they actually only take on real value. This is what's amazing, that the woman has to break the thing and pour it on Jesus' head, and then, only then, is the real value articulated. You see, Jesus then articulates the real value. What's the real value? What she has done, her understanding of and her offering to me, is going to be connected to the story of the gospel until I return. Now, that is value. 300 denarii, please. But it has to be broken and it has to be poured out. And only in the pouring out of it do we actually experience the true reality of its real value. And most of the time we're just too scared. We see the value. We don't see the reality of what it belongs to him and what he has for us out of it. What if it doesn't go well? What if it doesn't matter? What the story tells us is that it always, always, always matters to Jesus. Always. And he sees it, and he knows it, and he meets you in it. Someone talking about grace said, is there nothing he cannot ask of thee? And the answer is no. If grace is grace, there is nothing he cannot ask of me. So why this extravagance? Because love is extravagant. Love is extravagant. Commentator William Barclay captures this beautifully. It's a longer quote, so just go follow with me. He says, If love is true, there must always be a certain extravagance in it. It does not nicely calculate the less or more. It is not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all that it had, the gift would still be too little. There is a recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. Love can see that there are things, the chance to do, the chance to do which comes only once. It is one of the tragedies of life that often we are moved to do something fine and do not do it. It may be that we are too shy or feel awkward about it. It may be that second thought suggests a more prudent course. It occurs in the simplest things. The impulse to send a letter of thanks, the impulse to tell someone of our love or gratitude, the impulse to give some special gift or speak some special word. The tragedy is that the impulse is so often strangled at birth. This world would be a much lovelier, would be much so much lovelier if there were more people like this woman 
who acted on her impulse of love because she knew in her heart of hearts that if she did not do it then, she would never do it at all. How that last, listen to this, how that last extravagant impulse, impulsive kindness must have uplifted Jesus' heart. Once again, he says, we see the invincible confidence of Jesus. The cross loomed close ahead now, but never believed. Sorry about that. The cross loomed close ahead now, but he never believed that it would be the end. He believed that the good news would go all around the world, and with the good news would go the story of this lovely thing done with reckless extravagance, done on the impulse of the moment, done out of a heart of love. Loved ones, this, this is what a heart that has been affected and impacted by the gospel looks like. It's free. It's free. As Barclay pointed out, Jesus doesn't call us to this kind of risk, this kind of movement later. He, he's often calling us to it now. Assume now. Lord, Lord what now? What? What, what, what would you like? What, what would you like? What, what would you like to have? How do you want to invite me into your purposes? How do we become free disciples? Well, simply said, Jesus must increasingly become the most beautiful thing to us. He must become the most precious thing. He must become the object of greatest worth and glory. He must. It's the only way. So this woman sees Jesus as worthy of her sacrifice, worthy of her discomfort, worthy of her reputation getting slandered, worthy of her discomfort, and worthy of risking everything she has and even who she is for him. And, and this isn't some, some kind of a a, a religious cause where she's trying to earn some kind of spiritual self-righteousness, like she is somebody, nor is she trying to, to make this a transaction with God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the ointment thing on you, and you're going to give me this in return. That's what Judas does. That's what Judas wanted. No, she does it because of who he is, because of the beauty of who he is. How does Jesus become that beautiful? so wondrous and glorious that everything we have and everything we are are his, are at his disposal and are ready to be poured out for whatever ways in which he would invite us to do so? H how does that happen? How do we become those kind of people? We have to see him. We have to see him as the most precious thing, as the most worthy one, looking at us, to us, as true betrayers, as false disciples in our heart, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and choosing on our behalf to be broken and poured out for us. That's how we become those kinds of people. Seeing ourselves rightly and seeing him fully, what he has done changes our soul, changes our heart. I want to tell you about probably one of the, the most maybe one of the most pivotal moments where that was ever, that played itself out in my, in my life. I've shared some of the story before with you guys um, over the years. 
Uh, it took me about 25 years in my life to understand, to come to grips with the reality that that God was not going to work things out the way I wanted them to work out. I, I was a false disciple. I would do things expecting God to deliver and to give something that I wanted in return. And, and he wasn't doing that, and so I decided to do like what hopefully you know, truly most people do, and that is to go get it for myself. I'm going to take care of me. God, you're not going to provide for me. I'm going to take care of me. Sound familiar? As I've shared before in here, some of the ways that manifested for me during my years in the Air Force was having affairs. And um, there came a day as I prepared to move towards confessing these affairs to Becky that um, I encountered the gospel for the first time. And and <laughs> what I encountered in the gospel, that it wasn't my record, it wasn't the ways in which I had either screwed up or tried to be good that was going to make me acceptable to God. It was actually going to be his record. It was actually going to have to be what he has accomplished that was going to invite me towards him. That's what was going to make me loved and accepted. That's what was going to make me free. And that was like new information to me. I tried to be good and failed. I pretended to be good and, well, succeeded. I'd never been free, and I'd never felt like I was really accepted. I wasn't sure that I was loved. I was actually mostly sure that I wasn't. And so I was invited through a process to prepare and to, and to confess to Becky. And so one of the things that happened over the course of that preparation time is Jesus became, in seed form, in a very small way, beautiful and precious. I, I knew him a little bit. I'd seen him, heard of him with my ears, and I'd seen him with my eyes, and I, I understood a little bit of him. And then he invited me to step out and to trust him in ways that I never had before. And, and as I did, one of the things I discovered is that everything started falling apart. Confessing in October of 1999, as I've said, shared this before, it, it was a mess. It, it, was, it was damaging and painful, and, and it, was, it was a mess. And... But in the pain, in the disillusionment, I met Jesus. And he became, and I've always said this, he became like oxygen. He'd been like a sideshow in my life in the past, and, and he became air. Not water for three days, not, not food for 30 days, no air for the moment. And, and Becky didn't, wasn't interested in me anymore, and she was angry, and, and rightly so, and and he became beautiful. He was all I had left. He was my only hope at that point. And, and what he was declaring to me in the moment of my most obvious declaration of my unworthiness was that he loved me because of Jesus. And it changed everything. It changed everything so much so, so that that's, I would say that's, you talk about my first greatest moment of like, all right, I'm not sure how this is going to work. That was just the beginning. Four weeks later, I'm sitting in church. Becky's not with me. Um, and um, we're just about to take communion. It's one of the reasons why I think take, one of the reasons why to take communion every week. And clear as day, the Holy Spirit's like, you haven't told all the truth. And it was true, I hadn't. I had, I had held back some information trying to make myself sound better, look better, kind of, you know, absorb, absorb some of the, the shame and but I hadn't been truthful. I hadn't told the whole story. Actually, I'd lied about a few things. And I, I know which pew I was sitting in. The Spirit of God said, you, you will never be able to have all of me until I have all of you. 
And so that next week, I just kept asking God, you're going to have to make this happen. I'm too scared. I don't know how to bring this up. You're going to have to make it happen. And sure enough, he did. It was the first time it was clearest to me that I wanted him more than I wanted the story of a redeemed marriage, more than I wanted Becky's acceptance and forgiveness. He was more precious than all the things that I had put all of my chips in on. All the narrative that I'd written about who I wanted to become, he became more precious than that. But it wasn't true until, and I found him in that to be faithful and true and good. And the acceptance and the love and the forgiveness that I experienced from him gave me both the courage and the freedom to wait and to wrestle and to fail forward and to trust him with whatever he might have. Now, by the grace of God, by the courage of my own wife, there's a really beautiful story that has emerged since then. But it could have gone another way. It could have gone another way. I'm aware of that. And you know what I know today and what I've gotten to learn in a whole bunch of other ways through my health and through, through money and through job stuff is that, is that every time that we pop this and we trust him with this, he becomes more precious. Now, I don't think I've ever had a moment like that Sunday when I told Becky that I had lied to her and that began all over again and make a big mess all over again and wonder if she was going to ever trust me again. I don't think I've ever had a moment quite like that. And I don't know that Jesus has ever been so near as he was on that time. And that's his promise to you. That's his promise to you. You want to know Jesus? You have to be willing to walk around and say, what, what will you have? And if you want this, you can have it. That's what free disciples look like. And frankly, that's how we become different people. You have to see him becoming and being that precious. I'm going to close with one song. And in one of the lyrics in it um, comes from the wondrous cross from Isaac Watts. It says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If I had everything, were the whole realm of nature mind, it would still not be enough. He is that precious, that beautiful. Do you know him that way? You must know him that way. You may be free, that we may be a free people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're not inviting us to a consolation prize, but to the real thing, to the beautiful one. And Lord, we confess we do not see you rightly. Often we, we do not value you fully. We're blinded to your beauty and to what you offer us and to the very life in which you're, you're calling us into, but you are that beautiful. And so this today, Lord, as we come, as we take these elements and we receive them, we come with nothing. We have nothing in our hands. We come with ourselves broken and insufficient, and, and we, we need to receive from you your total sufficiency on our behalf. And so that's, that's our prayer, Lord, as we come is that we would see you and how beautiful you are and how insufficient we are and how the fact that you chose to be broken and poured out for us, that we may be free. 
that we may be alive and that we may enjoy you and be a part of this great worldwide proclamation of the story of Jesus with our actions to the praise and glory of your name. That's our prayer, Lord. Would you meet us now, we pray, in Christ. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this is your meal, this is your remembrance, this is your declaration of his great beauty. So come as you are and receive the grace of Christ for you.